I said, where do you get your optimism from? And he looked me dead in the face, and he said, I believe I'm the luckiest person on this yard. Whoa. I said, my gosh. You know, a lot of people will tell you that I'm positive, that I'm optimistic. You know, I'm bouncing around the world like Tigger, which I am. But I don't know if I can have the same optimism in your shoes. And he said, you have to understand, I come from a place that I did not have a life. I did not have any hope that I would ever have another breath in my body. The state was going to take it away from me. And so every day I get to wake up with as many breaths and as many beats as God is going to give me. And I don't waste one of them. Time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I hope that you have subscribed to The Cultural Hall wherever you're getting this uh, show today. I hope that you take a second and click subscribe so you do not miss a single episode when it comes out. I know I try and be regular. The first rule of podcasting is that you should put your show out the same time, the same day, every week, and I'm, I'm horrible at it. I always do episodes but I need to be better about doing it at the same time. But here's the deal. If you'll take a second and click subscribe, you won't miss an episode because it'll always show up in your queue. So take a second, press pause, go subscribe, and then come back and listen to this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and maybe you think it's uh, interesting to find out how these episodes occur. Well, let me tell you how this occurred. So uh, yesterday, yes, less than 24 hours ago, I was contacted by uh, a spouse of an old uh, like mission buddy, not even a mission companion, um, but I'll, I'll give her a shout out first name. Uh, she says, Hey Richie, her name is Bethany. She says, you don't know me, but you may remember my, uh, my husband, Cameron, to which I always love the, uh, na- knowing the first name of the, the person. Cause I didn't know them as that. I knew them as elder, whatever, uh, from the mission. Just wanted to tell you how grateful I am for your podcast and how much I love it. I usually listen to podcasts like Conan O'Brien or Smartless for the humor, but I I've wanted to focus on more spiritual stuff lately, and yours is a perfect combo of spiritual comedy and entertainment. And I thought, oh, that was really sweet. Uh, as being a, a, a podcaster, anyone knows that sometimes you just kind of go, oh man, does anyone does anyone care? Is anyone listening? Does this matter at all? And so I screenshotted that and I shared it over on our Instagram page. Be sure to follow us at The Cultural Hall. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Travis Ritchie said, hey Ritchie, let's chat, to which I said, yes, let's do it. And here we are. Travis, thanks for coming into The Cultural Hall. Good morning. Happy to be here. <laughs> you know what I love about uh, the way that I lead my life? Uh, most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, it pays off. I'm sure today will be that. But when people are like, hey, we should do this, my, my thought is never, oh, is this going to be a great fit? Oh, is this what, what I want to do? Is this going to be a good use of my time? Most of the time, what I do is I say yes, and then I sort of figure out what I have just agreed myself to, who I'm going to be talking about. And so uh, I welcome you here to the Colger Hall. And, and, and I'm excited, to be quite frank, uh, that it's another episode that, that we've had. We've had a few recently talking about uh, um, being convicted, being incarcerated, and, and sort of the redemption uh, that comes as you find your way out of the other side. And so I know some of that story from some research I've done in the last 24 hours about you, but I would, I would be curious if you would be willing to share that. Always willing to share that. Yeah, that's my... My, my mission is to share it with the world. I think that, you know, here on the cultural hall or, or even at the, the pulpits in church, you know, I think some of the culture that we have as a church 
is that there's certain topics that are sometimes off limits. And I've, I've noticed, you know, in my, my young life, that there's been certain topics that have been opened up over time. And this has been one of them. And fortunately for me, it's a time in America where everybody seems to be open to second chances, um, whether it's spiritually or religiously um, or just politically, because it benefits individuals. There's a lot of conversation around uh, prison reform and recidivism and second chances. And I think it dovetails nicely with, you know, our crowning achievement, which is the atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found myself um, with some very poor advice and trusting the wrong individuals at the age of 25. I, you know, to, to not rewind very far, but, you know, kind of checked all the right boxes in life, you know, served a mission, married in the temple, taking care of the family, you know, being a good human, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, was in the finance world and running a small fund. We had a small fund that was registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that fund was open. That particular fund was open for a period of about nine months in 2006. And due to a regulatory oversight in the state of Arizona, the state of Arizona indicted me and charged me with what they termed transactions of an unregistered security dealer or salesman. Which which doesn't sound like a big deal. I mean, really. I mean, I guess it is. And if I understood the financial world, I'm like, okay, well, make sure you get registered and then uh, pay your fee and we'll, we'll see you again next month or next year, whenever the fees are due. 100%. And you're right to that. And so when I try to equate securities laws to to today's world and just really make it rudimentary, it's it's similar to the medical marijuana debates that are happening. You know, if you have a a U-Haul truck full of marijuana, the federal government will happily arrest you for your life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, there's certain states and certain cities in certain states that you can still purchase it. You know, you can purchase it in Oregon. You can't bring it to Idaho. You can purchase it in Colorado. You can't bring it to Arizona. So there's these very interesting stipulations between the federal and the state legislation or regulation. This is this holds true with securities laws. Okay, you didn't register with this government. You need to register with that government. Okay, we don't see this as being correct. Then you need to register here. And so what it really comes down to is it was millions of dollars um, that I had under management and the state of Arizona basically wanted their dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. We said to them, well, we already told the, the federal government, which typically supersedes the state government, and Arizona said, well, no, we're one of the unusual ones, and that doesn't happen in our situation. And I thought, holy cow, this is crazy. You know, So we fought that for six and a half years and, and lost. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> unbeknownst to me and, and to everybody listening, just FYI, the federal government will fight you forever with unlimited resources. <laughs> and, uh, and so we lost. And so I was, I was sentenced. I was made an example of, as the judge told me that day on sentencing day, I was made an example of, and they sentenced me to two years in the Department of Corrections. So let me ask you something about that, because I, I know enough from talking to people who have been convicted, whether it's misdemeanor or felony level stuff, and, and you ask them, and it wasn't them, or they certainly, you know, it wasn't their fault, or you know what really happened was this, and we sort of have gone down that that rabbit hole a little bit, isn't part of... I mean, you made the correlation between sort of the repentance process and how the prison system works, the the admittance of, hey, I've done something wrong and the contrition that falls with it. Isn't that part of, of, of 
helping to uh, to avoid recidivism? It is, but the third main component that you're missing is cash flow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but but I mean, so that is that the exception, or because you do you do you see what I'm getting at, right? Like, yes, you were I made do, an yeah. example of, but but I mean, you did in fact do this thing. They don't just. Or are you contending that they do just throw people in jail as an example? No, 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 absolutely. Right. No, absolutely we did this. No, 100%. You right. know, and, you, and to your point, you know, there is, a, there is an interesting kind of juxtaposition where you step up to the plate and say, hey, you know, we absolutely did this, but, you know, there has to be a, a, a percentage of conversation that has to do with intent. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, where I was very, very surprised, and so was my legal team and everybody else we spoke to for six years was, you know, we sat down with the federal government. We sat down with the FBI. We sat down with the Securities and Exchange Commission, actually at Applebee's, you know, and they poured through our documents. They poured through our company records and, and gave us a clean bill of health. Hmm. And so oftentimes when, when, you're, when you're indicted or, or when you're under investigation from the government, and, you know, it's, it's the state that says that we're not interested, we don't have the funds, and it's the federal government that says we are interested, we do have the funds. Hmm. And in my situation, it was the opposite. So that was very confusing, you know, especially, you know, being as young as I was and kind of having the tiger by the tail in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there you, you do all the right things, you know, and, and here you are on the other side of this decision. Yeah, it was your decision. It was your behavior. It was your action. But I, I was under the impression that you could definitely have a conversation with people and say, hey, you know, there was some intent here that was not meant to do this, that was not meant um, to have any malice behind it. But that part doesn't hold up in the court of law in, in my situation. Mine was very much a, um, a targeted situation, and they were very interested in, in making it very painful for me. So what's it like getting arrested? Boy, I'll tell you what. So for the very first time in my entire life, you know, we pulled up on sentencing day, um, January 12, January 20th of 2012, almost a decade ago. And... You know, my wife and I, we parked our car on on the sidewalk, you know, put money in the meter because we were under the impression we were coming out. Uh-huh. And after the judge, after he, he uttered those words to me, you know, I remand you to two years in Department of Corrections. That was the first time in my life that I had the silver bracelets on me. Huh. And you never forget that feeling. You never forget the smell of the steel. You never forget the clicks as they, as they ping in your ears. And for me, you know, I, I was, I was literally blacked out. I was literally just in, in complete and utter shock. And I remember kind of coming to in that courtroom. And the reason I did was because the left handcuff was cutting my wrist and I could feel it. And and then there, and then is it, is it like I see in my uh, my television dramas where it's like, all right, I'm going through this door, and hey, tell the kids I love them, and I'll see you in a yep. couple of years, and it, it's exactly as that plays out. One thousand percent, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, from across the courtroom, you know, my, like I said, my wife and I had zero expectations. Everybody we spoke to had zero expectations of this happening, and and it was literally just a conversation with her, you know, uh, from about a hundred yards away. Told her that I loved her. And told her I would be okay, and because I knew I would be, and there we were. We were off through door number one, hmm. Hmm. and yeah, and and through the process of intake, through the process of um, you know little by little, as I like to say, the process of intake just 
takes away your dignity and your values and your morals, you know, inch by inch as they as they book you. I, I don't know what that process is. Uh, let's go through it a little bit. What is the process of intake? Why is that so demoralizing? Great question. So when you're going through the process of intake, um, first, you know, it's blood work uh, to see if you've got any communicable diseases. Then it turns into um, haircuts. Then it turns into clothing. Then it turns into photos. Mm. And so each process along the way, you're moved cell by cell. And it's the the worst Vegas nightclub experience. You know, it's (laughs) cold air conditioning, no windows, no doors, very bright, Hmm. um, lots of drugs, very, very Um, (laughs) Vegas-esque. So uh, as you're moving along during this process of intake, you're going from concrete bunker to concrete bunker. And there's individuals there that are detoxing. There's individuals there that, that feel that what they've got is unfair. But each process along the way, you're, you're separated. You go here, you go there. Whites go here, blacks go there. Uh, violent offenders go here, sex offenders go there. Uh, first time, it's this process of literally as cattle, you know, head to the slaughter as you're being categorized in terms of where you're headed. And little by little, you know, the process becomes a little bit more demoralizing. The conversation from the guards and the correctional officers becomes a little bit more degrading. And the verbiage and the dialogue from the inmates or the future inmates becomes a little bit more and more rancid as the process goes on. The the conversation on the outside would lead me to believe, though, that people that um, find themselves, you know, in trouble with the SEC or some of those other organizations, like that time in, in prison uh, is sort of a cakewalk compared to other things. Did you find that to be your experience? Once you get to prison, yes. Okay. Uh, jail is 10 times worse than prison. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, yeah. the, and the difference is... The difference for people who don't know what between jail and prison is. Yeah, and and we're talking in generalities, of course. There's a lot of really bad jails and really bad prisons. But, you know, in generalities, prison, you have the ability to have the prison yard. You have the ability to go outside, have fresh air. You you typically have your own cell or your own bunk or your own dorm or your own room. And so you kind of have your own routine. Typically, you will have a routine that will involve some sort of job. Hmm. So that's the prison experience. You can... Whether you're inside of prison or outside of prison, routine can often keep you sane. And so that routine of waking up at the same time, chow hall at the same time, exercise at the same time, uh, work at the same time, that those things in prison can give you the semblance of a routine, a semblance of normalcy. Whereas the jail experience is just 23 hours a day in a cell, and it's a revolving door of individuals. Some people are there for one day, one week, one hour, one year, 100 years. And so they're thrown into a cell with you. Jail is typically a dozen guys or so in a dozen beds. It's a very big room. It's a very loud room. You're sharing a toilet. You're sharing a shower. It's very, it's a very intense situation. Prison allows you to have some sort of routine. Hmm. Hmm. You know, something that uh, that I'm struck to maybe ask you is, you, as you go into the courtroom, you don't think that you're going to be, you know, remanded and then spend that two years. You obviously didn't have that time to prep with your spouse. How has she reflected what it was like for her when it was like, hey, see you later, I guess. My return missionary, temple married husband, this isn't what I thought this was. What what does she talk about this time? This isn't what I signed up for. Yeah, I would think. I would think that would be totally. a thing. Uh, so, so tell me, like, is she still signed up for it? What is that relationship like? And what does she reflect about how she came away from that time? 
still signed up for it a thousand percent. Yeah, we're going on fifteen years. Congratulations. Yeah, she's a rock star, incredible human. And fifteen years and four little ones. So, you know, when when I very first went down, it was just shock and awe. We had a good circle of influence around us, some really good friends in the church and out of the church, and we had some great support from family. And so I believe that helped it exponentially, really, through her experience. Um, you know, during the experience, the two of us, the very first thing that I was able to do was get a number two pencil and five sheets of paper. And as I started to write to her, because we couldn't have phone calls at that time because mm-hmm. we were in holding, I started to write to her and just let her know that I was okay, let her know that things were going to be okay. And what I realized really quickly was that experience was therapeutic for myself. Hmm. I would start to write, and we would start to communicate, and, and we kept that process through the entire 15 months that I ended up serving. And we have a, we have a gigantic three-ring binder of our letters back and forth to one another, our photos back and forth to one another. And what it did was, similar to a journal, that experience between the two of us became open and honest. It became raw communication. It's similar to today you know, these text message communications that people have because it's a little bit more comfortable than being raw with their emotions face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what Melissa and I had the opportunity to achieve. And so as we would start to write, you know, we asked every question in the book that was right, wrong, left, right, or indifferent. And I, I really wanted to get to know Melissa again, and she really wanted to get to know Travis again. And we really wanted to understand what the purpose of this mess was. And through our writings and through our visitations, we realized that our purpose was to turn this mess into a message. And our purpose was to shine light into dark places. And so as she came down to visitation every weekend when I was in prison, our conversations were about Life 2.0. We would sketch out finances. We would sketch out future businesses. We would sketch out future ideas that we had, trips, locations. And our entire dialogue during that 15 months became enshrouded in optimism. And there was books that she had read. There was books that she had sent to me to read, uh, you know, faith-based type books, but books about adversity. And Melissa and I really dove deep into adversity, into trials, into hope. And I wanted to make sure that whether I was in prison or out of prison, that I started having conversations around adversity and what to do with them, and why wasn't this talked about from the pulpit, and where are the resources for the women and the children and the moms and the wives of the incarcerated? And I wanted to start shouting it from the rooftops. You know, there were individuals that I came across in prison who were LDS, mm-hmm. who didn't know about resources, who didn't know about anything, who, who were removed from the church so far. And I thought, you know what, there's such an opportunity here for me to be an example or a resource or a beacon of light and hope to these people, just because they're on this side of the wall doesn't mean anything to me. So that's where our relationship was, and, and that's where it is to this day. You know, we're, we're happily married, and I think that our home today really serves as a beacon of reminding people that anything is possible, and no matter what you go through, you can come to our house because we don't judge you. I want to take a break right now, and uh, I'll, we, I want to pick it right back up with your story because, uh, spoiler, he gets out, everybody, and I want to talk what that was like and, and also what you're doing today. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. And as you know, there's been this humongous video card shortage 
In fact, there's been a huge electronic component shortage, but no need to worry. At PC Laptops, we just got in shiploads of NVIDIA and AMD video cards. We have them in stock right now, and they're available with all new PC Laptops desktop computer systems. All of our desktops are backed with a lifetime parts and labor warranty. That means if your video card blows up in 10 years, you're covered 100%. Now you can get our cutting edge PCs for as low as $29 a month. And we also have 12 month special financing. Hurry into PC laptops right now and grab a desktop computer with an NVIDIA or AMD video card. Because at PC laptops, we really love you. PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always give us episode suggestions, whether it's you suggesting yourself like Travis did, or or maybe you listen to a, a podcast, you've read a book, you had someone speak in your ward or state conference, you've read a thing, whatever it is, you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. We love to try and make those episodes possible. Uh, also, if you see or, or, or a witness to breaking news that would be in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you'd like to talk about that as well, contact at theculturalhall.com. We welcome that. Travis, uh, w- was there any thought ever on either of your parts that like, hey, maybe this isn't the, the wagon you want your horse to be hitched to and this is a great time to have that separation or was it always reinventing that life 2.0? It was always reinventing that life 2.0. We never even thought that failure or quitting was an option. Was there any sort of um, shame associated with it, either her on the outside, because yeah, you know, where's your husband? I haven't seen him around. Oh, he's you know serving time, uh, maybe just in community or church community, or yourself uh, being in prison, uh, any sort of that shame or guilt or any of that kind of stuff? One thousand percent, my friend. Um, yeah, Tell me about I that. Realized, yeah, I realized really quickly that you know Melissa was the one that was was serving time, to be honest. Melissa was the one that had to take the brunt. You know, my, my case is very public, very Googleable, you know, front page news, 25 years old, millions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was a salacious time. And then fighting it for so many years, there wasn't a person in our ward or stake that didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And so when it finally came to a head and, and we were on the losing end of that head, it was kind of a fifth, what I say, 60-40 split. 60% of the people were very unsupportive and very judgmental inside the church, and 40% of the people were very loving. Um, and and so when I went away, you know, I didn't have to deal with that stuff. Mm-hmm. You go inside, you go to prison, you kind of develop your own demeanor, character, rapport, routine, etc. And Melissa's still on the outside, driving the car around, going to the same ward, you know, still trying to maintain her routine, which, you know, comes with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt um, and a lot of judgment. Hmm. And I, I tell people all the time, Melissa and I lost more money and more friends during that time than I'd like to re- really remember. And, and so for us, you know, what we learned from that, my favorite talk of all time is, is Jeffrey R. Holland's Liberty Jail Talk. Mm-hmm. Truthfully, it, it is the greatest, you know, we, we learn you know, the, the irony that comes out of that temple-like situation in Liberty. And we, we understand that no matter what situation that you're in life, even the worst situations here that, that Earth has to offer, you still can receive, you know, sacred, revelatory, instructive experiences with Heavenly Father, no matter what, as long as you're bonded to Him. And that's really what kept us going. Melissa and I 
were constantly, I still have the Book of Mormon that I read start to finish, cover to cover twice while I was incarcerated. I still have that to this day. Our letters of optimism and courage back and forth to one another, really detailing the life 2.0. And then in both both myself incarcerated and herself on the other side, I can I can tell you a dozen different situations where we were blessed to have people come into our lives, even while I was incarcerated, who said, man, I've prayed for this. I've needed this. And, and for an example, you know, one of the prison yards that I was on, the last one that I was on was a very easy yard, like you talked about earlier, very simple. It was a work yard. Mm-hmm. And so everybody got out every day. And so we had church volunteers there. We had church volunteers there that would come in every Sunday. And so we would have church there, uh, or at least, you know, gospel doctrine. And I started inviting people. You know, there were so many people that were curious about the Book of Mormon I was reading or just my general take on life. And the, the optimism that I had while I was incarcerated became contagious, and I really wanted to make a difference. And so I started to figure out how do I make a difference, and it didn't matter whether it was mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. You know, there was all of these things that I wanted to bring some value to the yard that I was on. And so Sundays, you know, the volunteers would show up in their white shirts, and obviously they were stood out like a sore thumb as they walked across the yard in their shirts and ties, right? And we'd go into the chapel. And, you know, it started out with me and one other gentleman, and it turned into a couple dozen people that just really wanted to hear stories and really wanted to understand what the church was about. And there was so much therapy in that for me. And it was it was a point where no matter what, in that opposition, in that trial, that I knew for a fact that God doesn't abandon us, that he does hear our prayers, that he does see us. And it's imperative for us to remember that he's right there with us, no matter where we find ourselves. Dialing it back a little bit, though, uh, to like how people treated you and how people treated your wife, how how would you recommend that, that people do it? Because I think to the treatment of you, I think that it's hard because there there is that sort of dissonance within a person where they're like, yeah, well, what he did was wrong, and now he's in prison and, and, and being able to embrace and being loving. But speak how you wish people would have treated you differently and, and then also your wife. You know, I don't—it's hard to say. I don't, I don't mind the treatment of myself. I, I definitely despise the treatment of my wife. Okay, so let's go there. Um, how, how could people have embraced her? Because, I mean, she didn't do anything. Correct. You're, you're exactly right. And I think that's where us as a church, we, we've fallen a tad bit short. You know, it's the, it's the teenage son that doesn't go on a mission, so, you know, people look out of him at the corner of their eye, you know, or it's the father that has, you know, the porn addiction, and so we're not allowed to play with those children. There's definitely some things that need to, to, to be changed in that regard. And to be honest, I think it comes with grace. You know, how I wish that they would have treated Melissa specifically is, is just with grace. How did she need something that they could provide? And at that time, we really just needed friendship. She really just needed kindness. Mm. We were fortunate. We were okay from a family and a familial and a financial perspective, but she really just needed kindness. The individuals that reached out to her, and, and she still has a friend to this day, um, who I may or may not mention, but, you know, has, has literally been an incredible, the, the best human on the planet. Um, she lives in Arizona, and, and Melissa and her still talk daily. They're best friends, and she walked Melissa through this entire process. She was there with her from start to finish, and that's how those people should have treated Melissa. Judging Melissa because she married an individual who made poor choices 
to me is a direct reflection of the character of those people who are are judging Melissa. Um, I think oftentimes people are looking for validation or approval, mm-hmm. and and they're looking for it, you know, through the through the lens of diminishing others. So. I feel that grace is the answer to most situations. If someone doesn't go on a mission, if a spouse makes a poor choice, if a teenage son or daughter goes off course, you know, it's not right for us to manipulate how the world sees them. Sure. Um, it's, it's definitely all about grace. Well, and if grace isn't the right answer, it, it's, not a, it's not a bad, like, second answer or third answer, right? Like, <laughs> nah, I should have done something else, but I did do grace. Like, it, it, it's probably not a bad second or third. Uh, so no, you, but when you really understand it, right? Like, yeah. the atonement, yes. right? Yes. Like, when you really dive into grace, like, you know, I, the, God, God doesn't say, like, you know, you, I, I take 99% of it. You've got to make up the one difference. You right. know, like, grace, he took care of all of it. You know, and so it's it's really for us grace to give ourselves to be uh, allow ourselves to be loved, you know, and allow us to love other people and know that God is long suffering and and that it's for us to understand that the atonement is a continuous process. And we don't do ourselves any favors when we always do that thing. After all that we can do, it's grace. It's like well, sort of, but like, <laughs> kind of, but kind like, of. but like, come on, guys. Like, let's understand grace a little bit more. Like our Christians, brothers and sisters, who really yeah. get it and who don't have. Well, I mean, you have to do everything, and then grace. It's like no, like you do everything, <laughs> and then grace takes care of it. So you get out of prison. Let's talk about that. What was that like? Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. I feel like I already warned people, but... <laughs> yes. Uh, what was that like? Yeah. Uh, literally the second greatest day of your life after your wedding day. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. So um, the process was interesting, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll drop some nuggets for future. When I was in the holding cell getting ready to get out, I had a gentleman approach me. There was a few of us in there. And you're given $50 on a debit card so that you have some what they call gate money. Uh-huh. So you can, and this gentleman approached me and he said, hey, you know, you were, you were a resource on the yard to many. How do I use this debit card? And I said, uh, like, like, how, how? And he said, yeah, how? He said, I've been in here 37 years. I've never used one. Oh, my gosh. I thought, whoa, Okay. And I'll drop that nugget, and we'll talk about how that impacted my life later on and what I'm doing now. And so Melissa was there to pick me up, and it was the greatest day of my life. Obviously, I, I've had four children since then, and so life, is, life has been pretty magical. But, you know, there she is. You know, after 15 very long months, you're able to hug, you're able to kiss, you're able to embrace, you're able to just sit there and hold her hand in the car and, and go, oh, my goodness, is this real? It was literally the moment I felt like we were hitting the ground running because we had talked about so much and dreamed about so much while I was inside. And I had so much on my mind to do. I, had a, I literally had a notebook full of notes of like, this is what we're doing, and this is where we're going, and this is what we need, and this is where I have to start. And, and that process was fun, and it was exciting. And then reality set in. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> After that weekend, you know, we spent a, a fantastic weekend together and just really rekindled and... and after that weekend, you know, then my, my obligations, because I was let out early with good time, you know, I had some parole obligations and had to go to classes and had to jump through, you know, flaming hoops of fire and, and had to go back to church in person, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of things 
There was a lot of conversation. There was a lot of pain that was brought up. There was a lot of hurt. And so it was the best of both worlds, as they say. Um, I was rebuilding myself financially. And so I took on a second job uh, at nighttime because I needed a W-2 job. And you know, up until that point, I was self-employed mm-hmm. and, and took on a W-2 job where I would stack bread inside bread trucks uh, at a local bakery. There you go. Har- harder right. than you think, I want everybody to know. Harder than you think to stack bread. It's it's not a, it's not as simple as it sounds. It is a it is a difficult task and takes skill. So thank you for what you did, Travis. <laughs> Absolutely, I was the uh, I was the artisan king. <laughs> and, <laughs> so yeah, go ahead. And so you're able to come out and 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 you start kind of putting those pieces back and and life yeah. kind of becomes a part of it as well. Now you say specifically you say you went you went back to church. Now, did you do that fine Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thing where we just don't talk about it so that you can have the uh you know the appearance of being, you know, just fine, no past transgressions here or was it a a, a um, overt <laughs> choice of you to go, you know, here we go. We're digging in. We are talking about this whenever we can. Ah, uh, the latter. The latter. It has been for the last decade. I've tried to get every megaphone on the planet to talk about my trial. I wanted to make sure that people understood from my perspective. I believe that when we go through a trial, we knew that we were going to go through it in the preexistence. Hmm. Doc- doctrine according to Travis. Yeah. I believe that we knew that that trial was going to be so difficult and so ugly and so stressful, but we also knew that on the other side of that, it was going to be so beautiful, and so we agreed. I kept that thought with me through this entire process, and it's still what wakes me up to this very day. I know that my mess is a message that other people can relate to, and so now I have the opportunity to get in front of audiences and stages and podcasts and television shows and radio shows And I shout it from the rooftops and tell people that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true, that the atonement is true, and that all of us in our mortality are going to go through some very deep waters. And when we do, we knew that we were going to go through it. And so it requires us to have dialogue around it and talk about it, and it's actually our obligation to talk about it, how difficult it was, how ugly it may have been, because there's three other people in the room who are going through the same thing in some capacity. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to make sure that I could help those folks. I, I love those and those opportunities within the walls of the church where someone, whether it be from the pulpit or during a class session, takes the opportunity to step into vulnerability and share those things. But not everybody likes that, and that certainly isn't our culture that we're bred. We're getting better it's becoming more common. People are being able to to tap into that a little bit and and are willing to step into that. When you had those opportunities to share it, was it always well-received, or were there some people that are just like, well, here goes Travis, or Travis, why are you talking about this? Why don't you move on and put this in your past? <laughs> um, it started out as a, as a 60-40, and now it's about 99-1 uh-huh. for the positive. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, I think... What I've been able to do now is, is talk less about myself and more about others, and that's where it has really, has really pivoted. I now am able to say, here's the things that we're doing for other people. Here's what I've learned about other people. Um, you know, it's kind of like, how do you know that, that 
your friend's a vegetarian. Oh, don't worry. They'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Is your friend trying a new diet? Oh, yeah. No, you don't have to ask that question because they've told you and wanted you to join with them. Yeah, it's like most things. Yep. You'll know. (laughs) So, you know, that's where I think it's come full circle for us is now a decade later, we're going back into the prison system and creating curriculum and content and purpose for the individuals that are currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated and have been doing so, you know, for the last eight years, nine years. And as a result, have been able to impact hundreds of thousands of lives. So let's talk about that because you just sort of said that and it's like, oh, okay. That's what the Uh notebooks upon notebooks and the plan for life point 2.0 were all about. That's where it was my friend. And I'll tell you where it started. Very, very simply. When I got let out that last yard that I was on, I got let out each day. They, the, the prison had a uh, community college program where the inmates from all four of the different yards would meet at a section of this community college and they would go to, to school. And because of my degree, I had the opportunity to become a teacher and a tutor at that, at that college, that community college for the inmates. And so I went out there each day and, and just became a resource. And so with my financial background and my, my business background, they started asking me questions. Travis, what about this? What about that? How do I set this business up? What does this term mean? And so I started teaching a business 101 course, like an entrepreneur course, just by default. Mm-hmm. And, and it turned into a financial literacy course. And it turned into just kind of a very simple, and when I say course, I want to really qualify that for people. This is a very, very rudimentary conversation, right? It's 30 or 40 pages written down. It's a, it's a very, very simple course. Don't think that, you know, this is, you know, a capstone course at the Y or anything. And so um, as, I'm, as I'm realizing that the biggest chasm that they're missing is education. So I started telling Melissa about that. I started told, told my wife about that. And I realized that when they all got out of prison, they needed to get to and from. And so they needed a vehicle, a vehicle to get to parole, to probation, to their parents, to their children, to their job. And so oftentimes they would have a bad or a no credit score, like a triple zero, a ghost. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, they would go to some buy here, pay here lot, and someone would take advantage of them at a 28% interest rate. And they would end up with a 1984 used Saturn at 800 bucks a month. And because of the car payment, and they would do some things that they shouldn't do so that they could stay out. And I thought I could fix that. I can get them their FICO score while they're in here. I can show them how to go to the credit bureaus. I can teach them how to increase their score so they can go to a, a car lot and they can lease a car for 199 bucks a month. And they all looked at me and said, if you can do that, that's a life changer. And that's where my company, Accomplished Ventures, was started. Hmm. I knew I could fix that pain point, and I knew I could stop the cycle of recidivism in that capacity. You know, listening to uh, your podcast, Convicted Life, I binged a bunch of episodes this morning in preparation for this. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned is the recidivism rates and how if it were any other business, it would be out of business. I I like that sort of parallel. Let's give you a second to kind of talk about that. Yeah, most definitely. There's, There's some interesting statistics around the world of incarceration and interesting in a negative way, I believe. On average, seven out of 10 individuals that have been incarcerated will go back to prison within five years. And so I say, if you had seven out of 10 airplanes fall out of the sky each morning, or seven out of 10 buses crash each afternoon, you would no longer have a transportation industry. You would no longer have an airline industry because of the failure rate. 
but the prison world fails individuals seven out of ten times each year, and next year they get more individuals and more money. It's the only industry in the world that I can think of that is set up that way. The more failure, the more money. I want to uh, take a break right there, and when we come back, I want to get more into what you are doing now. Plus, there's three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. We'll get to those as well, coming back in the third block. If you remember back in episode 564, we had Portia Louder here in the cultural hall uh, talking about her time in prison and sort of that redemption story. Her book is available on Amazon, and she would love to let you know that you can purchase it. It's called Living Louder. You can find a link for it in the show notes. And for the entire month of January, that is January 2022, if you email her, Portia.louder at gmail.com. She will send you the Audible uh, copy for free. Yeah, you get to hear her read it in her own words, her story and her experience. And guess what? I edited it. So how about that? That's a partnership. Uh, it's Portia, P-O-R-T-I-A dot louder, L-O-U-D-E-R at gmail.com. I know that you love free stuff and I know that you love to support those who have come into the hall. Listen to the episode 564 if you haven't and email Portia to get your free audible version. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, please, what are you waiting for? Is there something you're waiting for? You can tell me and I can take care of that pain point and then you can become a Patreon saint. Uh, you can go to Patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. That's how you do it. There's a $5, a $10, and a $25 tier. It helps us keep the lights on. It also, I'll be honest with you, it's also monetary validation that you like listening to this and think, wow, that's worth my time and worth his time to do it. Uh, it also gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that all the Patreon saints are hanging out in. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Now, Travis, uh, convicted life, uh, I thought it to have a singular meaning and it has many meanings. Let's go there. Absolutely. In order to make a change in life, you must be convicted. In it, order to make a change, you must be convicted. You have to understand that you cannot play in this life with one foot in and one foot out. So go a little deeper, because I, I, because I, I just find it to be so tremendously powerful. And, uh, and at first glance, I was like, oh, convicted. Like, you know, he went to jail, he's convicted, he's gone to prison. And, but how, how can we do that? I don't want to go to jail. I don't need to go to prison, but I do want a better life. <laughs> You're absolutely right, and it starts with mindset. And so, so I developed a course called Convicted Mindset where I wanted to help the individuals take the tools and the knowledge and the resources that I learned in prison and apply it out here in the real world. So often we come across people who should have a very good life, should have a happy life, and are absolutely full of anxiety and fear and depression. I, I have met more people inside of prison who led a simpler, happier, more fulfilled life than a lot of people who are making six figures on the outside. Mm. 
And I want to teach people that those came from habits. Those came from ideas and beliefs and an identity that didn't live up to the way that your reality was currently looking. So you don't have to go to prison in order to be convicted. Oh, good, I good, good. People. Good. Woo, oh. Thank goodness. Oh, spoiler <laughs> alert. Everybody's okay. All right. Everybody's A-OK. Don't, don't lock, knock over the liquor store. <clears throat> Mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, in order to make a change, you must be convicted. So many people want to make these changes, and we see that all the time. You, you can't open up a, a, a news channel and not hear some sort of get-rich-quick scheme or some sort of get-skinny-quick scheme. Mm-hmm. And it's a new year, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody, new year, new me, new year, new me. Here's the thing. It doesn't have to be new year, new you. It needs to be a new identity. And let me tell you what I mean by that. An individual will never, ever, ever rise above the opinion of themselves. Let me be super clear. The strongest force that we have as humans is the need to remain consistent with how we define ourselves. I don't believe that that comes from motivation. I believe that comes from a belief system. And so I want to make sure that you, uh, you know, in order to get what you really want, you must be first who you really are. That's where I start with everybody. Who are we at a mental perspective? How do we take what you know and what you believe and take it into a believing mindset that no longer runs on scarcity? Let's talk about the physical, physical attributes. I don't expect everyone to look like Michael Phelps in a Speedo on Olympic <laughs> Day, but I definitely want to make sure that you're getting a little bit better each day and each week. Spiritually, I don't think that it has to be a religion. I think spirituality comes from your purpose, comes from your identity, comes from your why. Most people don't even understand why they're here. I hear it all the time when I work with clients, and they'll say, oh, I just wish I could do something different than my current job. And I say, great, what does that look like? Let's whiteboard it. What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? Where are you at? What are the colors? And they say, I don't know. And I go, great, so you don't really want something different. You just don't want what you currently have. Yeah. Right? It's an interesting, interesting dynamic there. And so, so many of us don't really want to put in the real work to change. We just want to tell you that we want something different. And so I wanted to pull this out of people when I got out of prison. I had great success with the individuals that were incarcerated, but really they're a controlled population. They don't have social media to tell them that they're too fat or too, too poor, right? Social media does a great job of really pulling out our insecurities. Mm-hmm. Kudos to Zuckerberg. And so for us, I wanted to change the narrative. And I wanted to say, look, experiences, they refine you. They don't define you. Failure is inevitable. Failure is awesome. Failure is feedback. Let's start from that position. And that's really where I wanted to take people on this side of the fence. So, so uh, knowing that that has become your, your life's passion and purpose, tell me about a difference you've made. Boy, oh boy. It's always hard for me to talk about these because um, it feels like you're bragging of some sort. So let me tell you one of the most powerful, one of the things that comes to mind right now, one of the most powerful interviews I've ever had inside of a prison was with a lifer. Um, it's an individual who took another person's life um, about 40 years ago. And this particular individual had enrolled in some of our financial literacy classes and was brought to my attention because this individual had six figures, literally six figures in his investment account. And a lot of the, a lot of the guards and the, and the inmates would say, hey, Travis, you've got to get to know this guy. You've got to, you've got to get to know this guy if you're ever on this yard. 
And so as I travel the country and when you start to visit, you start to hear these type of success stories. And so I sat down with this guy and said, you mind if we inter- interview you and, and record this conversation? He said, no, absolutely. So I really started with the financial perspective and, and he had charts, graphs. I mean, literally pieces of paper from wall to wall about certain stocks and how they performed. The guy was just incessant about it. It was beautiful. It was his purpose. And so then I said, hey, let's dive into what happened. And it was, it was the most, the saddest story that I've ever been told. And, you know, because of drugs and because of some poor, poor choices, you know, he took someone else's life. And the state actually went after him to take his life um, in the death penalty. Mm. And he, 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 you know, came out of that, obviously, and, and got three consecutive life sentences. And I said, where do you get your optimism from? And he looked me dead in the face. And he said, I believe I'm the luckiest person on this yard. Whoa. I said, my gosh. You know, a lot of people will tell you that I'm positive, that I'm optimistic. You know, I'm bouncing around the world like Tigger, which I am. But I don't know if I could have the same optimism in your shoes. And he said, you have to understand, I come from a place that I did not have a life. I did not have any hope that I would ever have another breath in my body. The state was going to take it away from me. And so every day I get to wake up with as many breaths and as many beats as God is going to give me. And I don't waste one of them. Whew, mama. Mm. That one really hit home for me. Really hit home for me. <clears throat> we have a, an entrepreneur course that is like a prison-style shark tank. And it allows us to, to teach individuals how to build a business the right way. And it's a 12-week course where we go step-by-step. Step. And on week 12, we have the community come in and the community leaders. They judge uh, the individual businesses, kind of like a shark tank. And we also bring in their loved ones, their friends and their family members on visitation. Um, for the inmates. And over the years, I have had dozens, if not hundreds of mothers come up to me and and thank me with tears and just say, you know, my son is never getting out. Hmm. I can't thank you for giving him a little bit of hope and a little bit of purpose. The letters and the, and the emails and the, and the direct messages that I receive from people that are incarcerated from convicted life, you know, our, our content, for those of you who are curious how these people hear about us, um, my content is on about 400,000 inmate tablets on a daily basis. Mm. So um, the content gets to the inmates via their tablets. So each day, about 400,000 inmates see my content, see my podcast, see my curriculum. And so that's where they're able to communicate with me from, for those, for those trying to figure that out. And I will get daily messages from individuals that are incarcerated that says that, you know, the Convicted Life podcast changed their mind, that the Convicted Mindset curriculum changed their life. And that is the type of stuff that means the world to me. And I, and I hear from these guys. I'll tell you one, another interesting story. I could do this all day long, but yeah. I'll tell you another interesting story. During my entrepreneur course, there was one gentleman that had a really, really good idea. Um, and, and it's a fitness-related idea. And it's an industry that I'm heavily involved in as an entrepreneur and an investor. And so I said, hey, this is a really good idea. You should run with this. And so I got him some resources. My team got him some resources. And he ended up networking uh, with a, an attorney in Washington. And the, the firm thought that there was so much potential in his idea that they became a minority partner with him and are 100% funding his startup, his patent, his trademark, his whole nine. I got a phone call three days ago. Uh, yeah, Monday. Yeah, three days ago from him in this inmate in his counselor's office. And the counselor said, Travis, we really got to talk to you about this. It's getting some traction. He is getting this inmate is getting letters 
from major corporations, major fitness corporations, talking to him about a buyout and a partnership. This is a man who is in prison, who is making a difference in his life and in the world. And I use that as an example that literally I say this all the time. If you've ever heard me say anything, the worst prisons in America are not made up of concrete and steel. They are the excuses and the life of mediocrity that you make between your two ears. You are stuck only because you are stuck. There is a life of resources and resourcefulness that's out there just waiting for you to take advantage of it. That's what I want to get across to people listening to this. And and so to those individuals, whether someone may be listening to this that's incarcerated or someone who is incarcerated in the in the prison of their own stuckedness, like what do you what 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 is what is that first step? How do we how do we walk out of that or what 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 is the change incarcerated or not that we that we take away from this? Yes, we we, we resoundingly are if we were a church that said amen are amening through this episode, but <laughs> but the, but then what? Yeah, he's right. He sure is. I sure do need to do something. Yeah, it sure is that I don't make different choices. Amen. But but then what? Yes. One word, folks, and the word is identity. Identity. You must make a shift. You must become an I am. And you must start to write down your non-negotiables on a daily basis. I am X, Y, and Z. I am A, B, and C. When you start to write down, if, if I can give you tangible steps on the outside, I would start every day writing something down. It could be in your phone. It could be in the notes section. It could be on a journal. It could be on a piece of paper. I want you to write down your non-negotiables for that day. I am whatever it might be. And there's so much societal and social media pressure that comes from making us think that we are perfect. And I don't want to talk about perfection. I think that's absolute garbage. I really do. There's no such thing as balance. There's no such thing as perfection. And it should never be in a situation where we we either say, I'm perfect or I'm nothing. I don't believe that. I believe that you have to grab yourself on identity. But you're going to say that I am this individual, and it needs to be super clear to you. It It can't just be like, oh, I'm a father, I'm a dad. No, no, no. It needs to be like, I am the most present father in my children's life. You have to create an identity loop that is so powerful that you get away from any other non-negotiables, period. If you're looking to make a financial change, you have to create an identity of I am financially free. If you're looking to create a spiritual change, you have to create an identity of I am this individual. It has to literally govern your entire life. You have to be committed to it. You have to be convicted to it. So where do I tell people to start? Write it down every day. I don't care if it's on lipstick on on the mirror. I don't care if it's on a notepad. I don't care if it's on your phone. Write it down. What are your non-negotiables for that day? And you have to live by them. You have to understand. And if you're not living by them, then you can dive deeper as to why. Do you, you've mentioned that you do a, a tremendous amount of work and content for those that would find themselves either incarcerated or in the process of finding themselves not incarceration. Are there programs and things that if someone has listened to this and been like, yeah, Travis gets me, that would be appropriate if they have no uh, intersection with the legal system? Yeah, our entire convicted mindset course has really nothing to do with the legal system or the justice impacted system. So convictedmindset.com is all of our resources, our coaching resources for individuals who believe that they're stuck. Hmm. The individual that knows that they have something deeper inside of them to offer to the world, but just can't figure out how to get there. Those are the people that go to convicted mindset. And again, 
I'm not about the motivation. I'm about the belief system. And I believe that everything that you need to be great is already inside of you. Hmm. It's just waiting for you to let it go. All right. We've got three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I will ask those of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling right now, sir? And if so, what is it? Gospel doctrine teacher, baby. And if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Gospel doctrine teacher. And, and are you digging the Old Testament, or would you be preferring to, to teach something else? Man, I'm digging the Old Testament. I'm going to go on a tangent real quick, because you opened up this can of worms. All right, sir. bring it. Bring it, sir. Let's, I just, it just dovetails with what I just said, with identity. Like, when Moses was tempted— when Satan came to him, when Lucifer showed himself, and he said, Son of Man, and, and, and Moses said, Whoa, 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 pal. Easy with the Son of Man reference. <laughs> I know who I am. I am a son of God. I know what I'm made of. I know the individual who made me. I know his potential, and he made me in his image. So check it out, pal. Stop it with this Son of Man nonsense, because I'm better than that. That's the identity that I want to push on everybody listening. You are better than the mediocre experiences that you're allowing yourself to wade through every day. The final question that we ask everyone and ask you to interpret it however you may, the question remains is what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, man, this is a good one. Ah, my favorite part of my faith, I'm going to say fast and testimony meeting right now, and I'll tell you why. I have a six-year-old daughter who will one day become president. (laughs) This little little six-year-old girl has so much courage. She would literally, like, jump off of a building blindfolded in roller skates if she knew that it would benefit her. She has just got intestinal fortitude. And so I have watched this little one for the last year write her testimonies and really ingest them and really watch others as they bear their testimony and ask me questions in the pew and say, Dad, what does that mean? Should I say that? And I've seen her come to church with her folded up little piece of paper with her testimony on it, all four sentences, and read it and, and, and go over it and then get to the pulpit and crush it. And that level of self-confidence that she comes back to the pew with brings me to absolute tears. Hmm. When we go back to who we are as just general, beautiful humans, it's like those little babies that see themselves in the mirror as they learn to crawl. And they're crawling around the living room floor, the bedroom floor, and they see that full-length mirror and they crawl over to it and they see themselves and they smile, and they might even laugh a little bit. Those are the babies that we are inside. When you see yourself in the mirror, you are perfect. You do love yourself. I love Fast and Testimony bringing that level of self-confidence that we had as babies and proving to ourselves that we can do hard things and we can confront situations that are difficult, and we can knock them out of the park and have such a level of self-confidence that is epic. Travis, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Brother Brent, and Chocolate Cakes Bites podcast. Uh, We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row 
of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row. 